Good evening and welcome to the Comics Corner. I am John. I am your host for this evening. I am I am reclaiming my Comics Corner as Matthew Klein took it over last week or last time, last time. Uh, but Matthew is not with us today. Instead, we have the amazing, the wonderful, the host, the former host, should I say former host of the Comics Watch podcast. We have the brilliantly smart, the incredibly funny, and the extremely kind Nick Osborne here today. Oh my goodness, I am blushing. That was too kind. I don't know what to do with myself now. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to join this. I cannot explain how hyped I am to be back on a podcast talking about comics, and especially this one. I'm, I'm so ready. Oh, good, good. This one, I, I was sort of like, I, I, this was a little bit of a shot in the dark. Um, <laughs> it was a book that I, it's a book that I have wanted to discuss for, um, for a long time. Um, and it was something you mentioned that you liked horror and then you mentioned that you liked crime. So I thought, all right, this will be a good one. So tonight we are discussing, I'm going to hold it up as usual, even though I know this is a podcast and it's only um, audio and not visual, but just for funsies. Yeah. Um, tonight we are discussing Dash. The Case of the Mysterious Zeta Makara by Dave Ebersole, um, who is a writer, uh, and then artwork by Delia Gable and Vinny Rico. Um, yeah, so shall we just jump into this? There's a lot to cover with this one, and I feel like about half of the conversation, at least on my end, is going to be like these huge, big, sweeping things, and then half of it's going to be about the book itself. <laughs> So, <laughs> so we'll see how this conversation goes. I also don't have Matthew to rein me in, so always something. Let's to be do it. Okay. Uh, let's start with the the sweeping discussions. Um, what is first on the dock here? Okay, so uh, a little bit about it. Spoilers abound, as per usual, so just be aware. Um, and this book is available at your local comic shop as well as online um, at online retailers and Comicsology. Um, I highly recommend this book, and we will see at the end of this conversation, as we always do, if um, our illustrious guest agrees with me or disagrees with me. Um, so this is a 19, takes place in 1940 in Los Angeles, um, and it is about a uh, police officer who has been kicked off the force uh, because he is gay, um, who now works as a private eye and a mysterious woman named Zita Makara comes and hires him to, uh, to help her find something. And the story goes from there. So as I said, spoilers abound, but um, yeah, let's, let's kick it off, shall we? We shall. That is a, a very brief overview too, because a lot happens in this book and a lot happens really quick, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is very fast-paced. <laughs> There's a lot that happens in these issues. Um, but the first thing that I noticed, um, let's start with a big sweeping question, and then we'll go sort of, um, we'll go in, I guess we'll go macro to micro. Um, normally I go micro to macro, but I'm good with going macro to micro on this one. Um, so it's a, an historical piece, obviously. And there's a lot in there about how we treated queer people, how we treated women, how we treated um, uh, foreigners, how we kind of treat the other. Um, 
And it's interesting mm. to me because it seems as if culturally, when we look at film, TV, novels, comics, we have this tendency to filter contemporary issues and prejudices through an historic lens. And I have my theory as to why we do that. But did you get that as well? Or was this just me reading into it? No, absolutely. I mean, and that's sort of ingrained into what this book is about and being this take on pulp fiction, right? Uh, there's a historical lens that's unmistakable there. And it's that way that we can sort of channel these ideas and these concepts into it. Because you're right, there's a, a whole conversation to be had about the treatment of disenfranchised communities within this book, set behind the actual law and procedures that we're seeing uh, Dash essentially take on this case. Because it's all within the framework of a mode of operating that has created these disenfranchised people, right? It almost almost enabled their situation. And that's something that I found more and more powerful. And as you get into some of the developments of the story, you start to see that the historical angle of this is a, a precedent that makes these characters tick. Uh, their reactions and their emotions to these circumstances are, are part of it. So if you remove that historical element, the, the impact of what's happening here may not sit the same. And that's sort of what makes the story so relevant to me. And, and what I fell in love with it because it is a pulp story and pulp by in and of itself has been something that's been exclusive to a certain community, right? It was always a story catered to people, not necessarily in disenfranchised communities. Uh, if they were, they were victims, they were um, a, a plot device to further the story. And that's something where we can use this, the historical element, the, the lens or the framework of the the actual time or the period of this story and use that as a way to explore what it means to be in this community and what it means to live in the society that has enabled it. And I think as we get into Dash's own experience and what happens in this, it only becomes more relevant. And that's sort of how the story lands so well for me. And I'll try not to spoil my own um, my own takes on how much I enjoyed it until the end, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there were some things in it that I think without that historical framework, maybe it doesn't make as much sense, but this is utilizing these, this pulp method of telling stories in a way that I really haven't seen before. And I was so excited at just issue one diving in because of how much it's able to accomplish within that framework. Yeah, I am always fascinated and my answer is much simpler, much less articulate than that. I always feel like there is, we often look at things historically because it, lets us off the hook of where we are today Ooh. and we can almost step back and say oh look at how far we've come which is fine and completely valid and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but i also think in some ways it lets us off the hook because it allows us to say look at how far we've come instead of saying look at how far we need to go yet and i think the thing um specifically about dash that really fascinates me is even though it's it's set in 1940s, he the he himself has a very contemporary sensibility because he's like, okay, this was taken away from me. How am I going to function without everything that I have been working for my entire life? You know, I my secret's been blown. Everybody knows that I'm I'm gay. Um, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna function without it. And it's almost. Um, in the in this in the very broad sense, 
I almost feel like he's kind of a time traveler in that he couldn't, you know, could he really have functioned this way in 1940? Probably not. But I don't care because I'm so interested in in the idea that he is a kind of a pioneer in the same way that Sylvia Rivera is a pioneer or Marsha P. Johnson is a pioneer or Larry Kramer is a pioneer. Um, and if you don't know who any of those people are, look them up immediately. Wait until the end of this podcast and then look them up. That's probably the best thing to do. Um, so that, that sort of, each time I read this, I sort of get that same feeling and I sort of go, okay, this is, this is, why I'm feeling this way. I don't know. Right. Am I wrong? No, I love that really. I, I that's a fascinating concept, really, because you do get that perspective, like somebody operating in this time under these circumstances, are they gonna behave like this? Dash feels ahead of his time in a place that's just demanding to hold him back into the the expectations of the 40s, right? And you're constantly seeing him like, this is not who I am. This is not how I need to be. And everybody's constantly telling him otherwise. Um, but the the circumstances that he's found himself in, maybe he wouldn't operate that way now, but it feels like a voice that's been trying to come through for a very long time. And that when you set that within a pulp story, it sort of has a magnifying glass on it, right? Because you're seeing all these other components, especially like with the police and uh, the help with Cindy of like the secretary and like these different sort of, I don't want to say expectations or stereotypes, but Dash seems to be the one that transcends all of them and saying like, I could pull this character out and put Dash in the 80s or in 2020 and like see what that, that mode of operating looks like. But we're in the 40s and the restrictions are painfully, painfully obvious. And it's sort of something Dash is confronted with at almost every page. Anytime there's a new character coming into the story or someone he's interacting with, we almost go through these different social expectations of why Dash isn't fitting in necessarily like these other characters. And yeah. maybe like we get some of that from the time and expectations we're bringing into the story. Um, I don't know how much of that I'm projecting onto Dash, but it, it does feel like the relatableness of that character is sort of defined by this is a time period that maybe I'm not set in, but I can see that struggle. And it's one that continues on throughout the years. And it's just heavy in this. And it, it sort of operates or it impacts everything that he does. Yeah. And I, I, I think one of the things that I really liked um, that Ebersole did was um, this, this sort of almost seamless mixture of genres because it's it's starts as pulp, it moves mm -hmm. into this 1930s horror and yet the pulp never really goes away, mm -hmm. which I find really fascinating because both of those genres, if you look at them from a film perspective, and I'm, I'm gonna look at them from a film perspective and we're gonna go back later on and I hopefully we'll have enough time. We're gonna go back later on and kind of talk about literary references. Um, but the thing that I, I love about both of those film genres is they are very much about, as you said earlier, the otherization of things mm. and people. And they are genres that um, I, I think queer people especially have really enjoyed. I know, I, I know almost, almost every single 
queer person, person I know who identifies as queer, loves horror, loves it. Um, it's a thing. Uh, it's a thing. <laughs> it is a thing. It's a, it's a huge thing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of queer horror podcasts out there. Um, but then also when you look at film noir, it is also this otherization because there's always the, the characters who are kind of on the, they always are characters who are on the outskirts of society and who don't necessarily, and because they're on the outskirts of society, society kind of pushes them into making decisions that are not always the best, um, such as, you know, devil indemnity where you push your husband off a train and kill him so you can collect money. <laughs> Um, or, you know, you get your lover to blow up your husband, something like that. Um, but yeah, thoughts on that one. Sorry, before I go on, yes. I was about, to, I was about yes. to start spoiling the next question. And then I was like, we should answer this one first. <laughs> yeah, let's dig into this a little bit, because I, I appreciate that sort of conception of this is a merging of genres. It's a heavy pulp story, but really what had me so thankful that I was reading it page by page was that it leaned into horror heavily and I wasn't sure when I picked up the book how much of a horror it's going to be is it something that you know the last couple of pages of every issue like gets a touch of horror but this feels like a horror story like when I'm reading it it's perfect October reading and I love that because I'm a huge fan of classic horror so it really struck a vibe with me. The part of me that loves the the hammer horror films or even the classic, you know, 30s, 40s universal horror. Um, and of course, there's the the Boris uh, Karloff mummy type of vibe going on here. You know, it's easy yeah. to put that together. And there's a whole conversation to be had there about sort of what those films did for uh, marginalized communities and what a voice or we've been able to find in that and what that story means. But to me, that that merging of a pulp story with horror worked really well for these characters and served as like this vessel to explore different ideas. And one of those happens at the very end of issue one, which is a, a huge flip that I will let you spoil if it's to be spoiled. But that was sort of the moment where I was like, this is not what I'm expecting. This is not the book that I thought I was reading. And now I'm immediately going into issue two because I have to see what's coming next. Um, yeah. I have pros and cons about that flip, but what it did was it sucked me right into issue two, no questions asked. Yeah, and I think I would have felt different about, uh, okay, I'm, we're just going to spoil <laughs> this, so just be aware. It's, yeah. it, you know, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't read the book, you should still read the book, but um, what I thought interesting, and I'm I'm going to kind of cross two questions here, or two thoughts here, is because I am a huge fan of film noir and I am a huge fan of pulp and I have always loved the femme fatale and I loved seeing a man as the femme fatale. Plank, yes. Dash's erstwhile lover. Um, well, Plank. I know. Now, here's the thing. Had, I think, had a straight writer written this, I would have felt like oh, you just fridged Plank for no reason other than the growth of your main character. But I didn't think that because to me, what it did is it made the idea, because Dash kind of repeatedly says through the book, 
not sure. I didn't realize I was in love with him until he was gone. Mm. Certainly they had a physical relationship. Certainly there was affection there, but right. he kept saying, I can't trust you entirely, Plink, because of your very shady past and because you just disappear for weeks at a time and I don't know what you're doing. Um, yeah. So it, it was on the most basic of level fridging the character, but it didn't read that way to me. Did it read that way to right. you? Or a were you little just heartbroken bit. because of playing? Okay, yeah, that was the first motion. When I when I turn the page and see that, my heart sinks. And I'm like, no, I loved you so much. Why is it like this? And then my next thought was, yes, like, as I'm going into issue two, it, it strikes me like, is this a bury your gaze moment? And I'm trying to read it in the context of what the story is, of the publisher, of the creator, and what the story is trying to accomplish. And I'm okay going into issue two saying this is not some straight guy burying their gaze as, as a plot point, because there is something here. There's a, there's a commentary here to be found, and you might not get it at the end of issue one, but by the, by the end of the actual arc, I think it makes a lot more sense as to why this character died, because there's a commentary on sort of what it means uh, to be who you are in this time period. Plink represents sort of this maybe fractal version of what we thought it would be in the 30s and 40s and like you're talking about how maybe dash is this time traveler because that's what you want to be right mm -hmm. like you, you want to be dash but you're interacting with a ton of people like plink who you can't help but love but yes have this shady past yes will not respond to your text messages for days on end and then we'll have some random excuse afterwards as to why um that part felt so familiar and I understand what that is and there's a commentary there in what that relationship looks like but yes at the end of issue one I said hmm we just buried our gaze here so what does that look like into issue two and it is what it is I don't think this maybe the story doesn't land as well if you don't do that at the end of issue one it changes the framework of everything right because this becomes a motivation and this becomes a a key plot point and pillar of the story that helps to define the significance of dash but it's still there in the back of my head like i won't blink alive <laughs> and i don't know what to do with that right and okay side note to anyone who texts me i do not return your text for days i will not give you a shady excuse i will just tell you <laughs> i didn't feel like it so that's why just so everybody plink knows. Knows, like plink doesn't do that though he doesn't say <laughs> i just didn't feel like it okay <laughs> like you don't get that you get shady responses from plink yeah i'm not gonna give you a shady response i'm simply just gonna let you know <laughs> i just didn't want to do it so um i i probably didn't have anything better to do i just didn't do it so anyway just so you know about that but <laughs> Yes, I am a terrible human being, and I admit that. But No. <laughs> <laughs> but here's part of the reason that I didn't necessarily think that, why I didn't have any problems with Plink's death. Yes, I had problems with Plink, Plink's death, because you always want to see your main character happy. But there's an interesting correlation to me in the last issue where you see for lack of a better phraseology, the straight washing of history, where you see historical figures who are queer never being represented as queer. And so I sort of, where 
where Dash isn't allowed to mourn Plank, where openly right. mourn Plank. Mm. Mm-hmm. It sort of correlates into the idea of we've taken away, and it's, I mean, throughout history, there's, um, you know, Hercules and Ganymede, there's, uh, oh, was that Apollo? Apollo and Ganymede, you know, mm-hmm. Achilles and uh, Patrocles. Um, there, is an, there was an African king who was, uh, who, while Nick is talking the next time, I will Google so I can make sure that I have his name correct. Um, King of uh, Benin, who was openly bisexual, had male lovers and many, many wives. Um, but there is this sort of straight washing, and it was almost like, and when I was reading Plink's death this time around, because I've read this book many, many times, it was almost like an, an indictment of the fact that people can't mourn couldn't mm-hmm. mourn, and in some cases still aren't allowed to mourn openly, whether they're in the closet or their family, you know, yeah. whatever, um, whatever the circumstances of someone's life are. Um, I think that there's something really interesting about that. And so it didn't bother me quite as, it didn't, it didn't ring that bell for me. That makes a lot of sense actually. And this is an interesting component that comes into a lot of discussions about the release of books what it means like if i'm following this book as it's releasing monthly and i just read issue one i probably spend a month being like i cannot believe that we're getting this and they immediately killed the love interest of dash like and then i get the next issue and it starts to make more sense but i had the opportunity to sit down and read it all in one sitting so i was able to just go right into it and sort of have all of my questions and concerns addressed immediately and that's something that it's it's definitely a choice to end the first issue on that, like that type of cliffhanger, especially like what the story is and what it represents, but it's not doing it for convenience. It's not doing it to just serve as some plot point that um, is easily forgotten. I think it's a, a key moment that helps to specify why this is such a relevant pulp story. And I think that's a, a good thing for me that eventually I came around to and understanding what they were trying to accomplish, because that is a good point in saying, you know, when he's with Sal and he's saying, I know you're feeling this way, but there are people here and you're expected to do your job and everything. like. And if it was a straight couple, of course, that wouldn't even be anywhere near the discussion. You'd be like, oh my God, you lost your partner. And it would be all empathetic and these types of things. But because it's Dash and because Sal knew what was going on there, he was sort of nudging him saying, hey, remember societal expectations. Yeah. Remember who you're supposed to be. Yeah. And there's also this... um, uh, by the way, the person that I was thinking of is Kabaka Mwanga II, um, uh, who was a Ugandan king, an openly bisexual Ugandan king. Anyway, just throwing that out there. Um, yes. Just so I have that. But um, I also think that there may have been, and I, I you know, um, would love to have a conversation with Dave Ebersol and, and talk about it. But I think that there's also, it's such a, male hero trope of, you know, I, I mean, how many, the Punisher, Daredevil, um, well, Batman lost his parents, it's not his girlfriend, but he did, has lost mm-hmm. several girlfriends, um, several love right. interests, but there's a, there's, I think that there's an interesting kind of aping of that, 
um, that mm -hmm. is a reflection of that. That kind of is like, okay, well, it's it's good for you. So we're it's good for you guys. So we're going to do it. Um, and I don't I don't mean that flippantly. I'm just right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it becomes part of the commentary. And to me, that's how it works. It's not just a thing that exists and now we're moving on. It becomes part of the core of what the story is about. And I don't think that you can look at this story and sort of discuss what message you're getting out of it or what it's trying to communicate without that key moment that happens at the end of issue one. And yeah. to me, that's it lands well because of that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really struck me was the because they're kept coming up with the idea of trust in this between mm -hmm. Dash and Plank, between Dash and Zeta, between even between Dash and Sal um, right. later on, um, there's, there's always this sort of thought of, you know, well, I can't try, quite trust you because I'm not telling you the truth. And yet none of them, even Dash, because did you get to read the, the trade or did you read it in a single issue? Mm -hmm. You read the no, trade. I read the trade. Yes, it was um, the trade, but I read it on Comixology, um, digital reader. Right. There's just, the reason that I was asking that is because there's the, there's the extra story at the end when mm -hmm. Sal finds out that Dash is gay. Um, yep. And Sal's response is, I don't have a problem with you being gay. I have a problem with the fact that you didn't tell me because yeah. I'm supposed to be your friend. But there's a lot of that throughout the book where I want trust from you, but I'm still going to hide parts mm. of who I am. And I think the only character who really is just like, fuck it, I don't care, I'm not hiding, is probably Cindy. <laughs> This is true. This is a very true. Cindy is like, you don't get a lot of anything hidden from Cindy. Um, you get everything Cindy's thinking immediately right up front. I don't, I don't see a lot of that. And then maybe that's why I love Cindy so much. Um, Cindy was a fun character and a, a great contrast to that type of secrecy, right? Like maybe that's why she stands out so much because anytime Cindy's involved in any of the panels, like she's the one not hiding anything. It's it's all right there. It's almost like he managed to throw a third genre in there and screwball comedy and just have her be like, you know, Rosalind Russell and His Girl Friday or something. Where right, you know, uh, it's a, again, I got ice. Like we're not out of ice anymore. Essentially, like this keeps coming up. Like <laughs> her concerns, <laughs> you know, and like there are much bigger things going on. But Cindy's very much her own person and doing her own thing, and she will let you know. Yeah. Um, why? I, this I, this is kind of not kind of. This is something that happens very much in pulp literature, and this is probably a good place to bring in our literature literary thing. Um, but why do why do we? I guess the larger question is this is a philosophical question, but you know, let's let's debate this using the world of comics. Why do we demand? that other people trust us and yet we hide things from people why do we think that's okay again question for the philosophers but here on on here on on comics corner we're going to talk about it we're going to use comic books to solve all of the world's problems <laughs> mm, that's a that is a big question and one of them i think that comes to mind is cindy's response of always being like aren't you the detective 
like how can you not see it? and i think that role that we see um, is an exploration of what it means to be a detective and what dash has found himself in because dash is sort of oblivious to things that he should be tapped into that he should be aware of and the things that he he's demanding this trust from everybody of uh, withholding certain things because he needs to further this case Cindy's not necessarily the same. Um, this is not, you know, I'm demanding trust because you need ice, a type of situation. Like, I, I think that there's something there. I don't know if this book necessarily spells it out entirely. Uh, it's definitely a philosophical question to talk about, you know, especially what it means in, as we're looking at the disenfranchised communities and their interaction with societal expectations of the time. And then you throw in the case of the mummy and everything going to hell, essentially. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack. And then how we're demanding trust out of that situation. Um, I think that there are, there are different influences in that, but there's something to a uh, personal gain that there's a selfishness or an ego that I got out of a lot of things and I got it out of Plank heavily. Um, there's this motivation that feels purely individual. And I think there were a lot of those motivations that came into this and it's sort of how they all coalesce that creates the situation that we're dealing with, it, with the case itself. Yeah. But the, that's a tough question. I, I, <laughs> the, the demand of trust goes a lot of ways. And it's it's interesting, and I think maybe, um, and this is something that I'm I'm sort of just forming this thought now. Um, I think the reason that sin that he does kind of in many ways, everybody really kind of trusts Cindy implicitly, is that she's not hiding anything. Because she does she doesn't care if you like her or not. You will respect her, but she doesn't care if you like her. And I think that manifests itself differently in her than it does in Dash, because societally, even though she has limitations as a woman, the way that he has limitations as a, as a gay man, I think there's something, uh, there's an interesting parallel there. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, like basically living your truth type of situation as basic as, as it can be. Um, Cindy's in a position where um, she's being into this, uh, the societal expectations of her role, uh, where Dash is sort of constantly butting up against it. And I think Cindy is sort of this manifestation as um, what I read is like who we want to be. And then Dash is sort of who we are. And, you know, we want to be sort of outgoing and, and as honest with ourselves and our expression of ourselves as possible. But we ended up being more like, or maybe speaking just for me, like Dash, where you're a little bit more reserved, where you're sort of asking for more trust than you're giving sometimes. And you can see how that backlash create or the backlash that that creates. Yeah. And it, it makes for a great dichotomy in the office between Cindy and Dash because anytime they're together in the office it's like oh goodness and that's sort of the heart of it right like Cindy being so overwhelmingly truthful and Dash always being like mm, I'm kind of reserved on this yeah. um, I, and I love Cindy's final line where she talks about well happy endings don't really exist everybody is doomed and it's just finding the right people to be right. doomed with and I'm like oh okay mm. she's got it kind of figured out um, right. which I find really fascinating. Um, 
because again, and this kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, where Dash hasn't quite figured out yet that he's in love with Plank until he doesn't have that opportunity anymore to realize it. Mm -hmm. um, but I also did love, um, I'm sorry, I know I'm bouncing all over the place in this, um, in this conversation. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about literary precursors to Dash. So are you a fan of pulp novels at all by any chance? Probably not as much as you are. I have not read nearly as many pulp novels. Um, well, that's because you're a lot a younger. Lot of so I've had like 30 extra years <laughs> to read. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, my experience is mostly in comics. Um, as far as novels, I, I am definitely open to recommendations on those. Well, it's interesting because they're sort of, very early on, and I'm going to speak specifically to queer literature here, um, the probably kind of the first ongoing series of the first what some of the first two ongoing series of male mysteries. Now, there was Pharaoh Love, which was written by George Bax. Pharaoh, yeah, Pharaoh Love, um, who was mm -hmm. actually a queer Black detective in the, I want to say in the late 50s, early 60s, and I might be off on that time period. I apologize, Mr. Baxt. Um, but there was the Dave Bransetter series by Joseph Hansen, which was early 70s. I want to say 73, 74. Um, and then there was the Richard Stevenson, um, who did the uh, uh, Don Strachey mysteries. Um, and that was late 70s, I want to say 78, 79. But um, it's interesting of those two, Dave Bransetter, the earlier series, he was gay, we knew it, but we didn't really see him in a relationship. In the late 70s, um, uh, John Strachey was gay, was openly gay, was in love with, uh, you know, lived with someone, um, but also was kind of in that they had an open relationship at the time and the relationship progressed as the books progressed and they went from having an open relationship to having an anonymous relationship, yada, yada, yada. But um, I really love the fact, and I'm, I am leading somewhere with this long rambling explanation, I promise. Um, I, um, and I, I loved discovering them in my 30s. It was probably my late 20s, early 30s. And I was like, oh, I wish I had known these books existed when I was in my teens. And one of the things in the, um, in the afterword in this book that Dave Ebersall says was, he was like, I, I wanted to write a book that I wanted to read. And I think that's really a fascinating way because so often I think, and you've probably talked to a lot more comic writers than I have, um, but I'm really fascinated that comic writers are like, oh, I wanna write something that's you know, I sort of, I think there's this expectation that people are like, I want to write something that everybody reads instead of saying, I want to write something that I want to read because even if I'm one in a million, there's still like all of these other people that are like me, <laughs> if, you know, because theoretically, if you're looking statistically yeah. at, the, at the population of the planet, <laughs> even if you're one in a million, <laughs> there's still a whole lot of people like you. So <laughs> let's talk about that for a second. Writing what people, writing yeah. 
not for other people, but writing for what you want to read and knowing that there's going to be someone else who's interested in it. Right. To me, that's a first sign that somebody is, they have a message that is worth listening to, that they're, they're putting themselves into the story, not for the sake of commercialism or for mainstream appeal, but for the sake that there's a story worth telling. And we see that a lot in queer communities. We see it a lot in disenfranchised communities. Um, you see it in people who didn't find the stories that reflected themselves when they were growing up. So now they're at a point where I can make this, I can do it myself, I can release it, and I can provide that story to a younger version of me who's looking for that story right now. And they know that want and that need for that type of storytelling, and they're able to provide it in a way that we haven't seen before. And I mean, getting right to the heart of the expectations of why Dash couldn't be who he was and why Plink had to behave the way he did. Uh, there are these expectations and the creations of these different models of society. And, and that comes in every form of expression, whether you're a detective or whether you're writing comics or pulp novels at the time. I mean, we're getting to this point of expression in storytelling that we can do things like this. And now there are podcasts and now there are platforms and accessibility that you can that you didn't have before. So a story like Dash can resonate a little harder or a little louder. Yeah. And to me, that's it's such an indicator of something that I need to dig into when when somebody's saying something like that and saying, I'm writing this because I didn't have it and I wanted somebody else to have it. And I'm I, I can say that with honesty because I'm from East Texas at a place where you had to try you had to try really hard to find your reflection in the story that was not easily accessible. And coming into that, that's why I'm on digital reader. That's why I'm doing so many of these different things for accessibility, because it's such an important moment for me. It's such an important aspect. And this writer is just an extension of that. Uh, I'm the person that's looking for that story and that reflection of myself and those struggles that have societal expectations. And I'm the reader of that type of story. So it speaks right to me. Yeah. Um, and I want to take a second here to just stress, and um, this is something that we sort of, we talk about it every comics corner, but we sort of gloss over it. And I, I just don't want to gloss over this for, for this particular book. Um, two things. The first is, if you, you know, support your local comic shop, go to your local comic shop, ask the people who work there, tell them what you're looking for. They will find you something. And if they can't, there are a million comic stores across the country that will find something for you. Call them, send them an email, tell them what you're looking for. They will recommend something for you. Everybody does mail order these days. There's a million ways to get comics. Um, but I guarantee you there is something out there for you. So please, you know, support your local comic shops, support a local comic shop and, and go in. I guarantee you will find something for you. So that's what I, that's one thing that I wanted to say. The other thing, I'm going to step from one soapbox to another soapbox here. Um, the thing that I, I love about Dash is that I feel like I can recommend this book to so many people because it talks about love and trust and relationships. And there's something that's very universal about it because it's got a tough guy at the center. It doesn't feel like it's taking away from, for example, you know, the tough guy noir comics like 
Parker by Darwin Cook or anything like that. Mm. It feels like it's adding to it. So it's one of those books that doesn't feel like it get I get the same pushback when I recommend this, like, oh, why does he have to be queer? I don't get it. You can go, you mm. know, I'm not trying to take anything out of your library. I'm trying to add something to your library. And I think that there's something, um, my, I think there's something about my, this being one, uh, as far as some of my favorite queer comics that don't feel threatening. That's not the right way to put that mm. because I don't mean that like, I don't mean that like no. assimilation. I mean that like, right. there's plenty of space at the table. Just make another seat. Right. It's, yeah, it's welcoming and it uses accessible feelings and emotions and storytelling beats that anybody can sort of latch onto, right? And it, it uses Dash as a character that you're almost expecting to see at the heart of the story, but everything happening to him and everything about who Dash is is sort of where you're getting the the surprise moments. Um, it feels familiar, it feels welcoming, and it isn't detracting from anything. I mean, this the forward and the, the edition I read by Steve Orlando, who I'm mm -hmm. such a huge fan of, um, I was actually able to talk with him at the Comic Watch podcast, and he's every bit as vulgar in a, in a live podcast as he is in written this forward. Um, it, it's it that does not change, and I love that about Steve Orlando. But he's such a an insightful human being, especially when it comes to storytelling on this, because I mean, I don't know what the the language requirement is here, but he he essentially summed it up and we're saying fine. It's we're about effing time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like that sentiment of, and that's sort of where I got out of reading this book is like, why wasn't this in my life earlier? Because I, I definitely needed this story. And that's the sentiment you get from it because it has so much to add to not just the genre or the medium, but to the universal languages that it's trying to communicate. And I, I think that's, it's a powerful story just because of that alone. And we're not even getting into the process art or, you know, what it does well for the comics medium, just purely on themes alone. It has so much to give. Yeah. And I think part of that might be, and again, this is me with a completely unformed thought. I think one of the reasons that um, I love this book so much is it's not a coming out story. He already starts out. Like the worst thing that could have happened to him has already happened to him. The second worst thing that could have happened to him has already happened to him. The worst thing that happens, yeah. to him happens to him at the end of issue one, as we've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's... Poor Dash. No, I know. Don't worry. I promise. I have a good final question to wrap us up with. I promise. Um, uh, but yeah, I because it it's not everybody has to come out, but everybody has trust issues or relationships. Everybody loses someone that they love. Everybody who read, I feel like everybody who reads comics at one point or another is like, yeah, I'm the tough guy. I'm the strong guy. I'm like, you know, if I had claws, I'd be just like Wolverine. And I think that every, you know, sort of everybody who has been, uh, picked on and frankly I think comic nerds throughout history have always been picked on everybody's sort of wanted to think of themselves as this tough guy which is who Dash is which is one of the reasons that I really love this book it's so true like 
it's easy to put myself in Dash's shoes and not just because I'm I'm relating to like the situation or him being reserved or something like that, but also because, yeah, he's the toughest guy there. Like, and you feel that sort of pushback against, you know, the society he's living in. And even as just a, a nerd, like on my level, you sort of get that, like everywhere you're going, it's like this pushback on who you are. And yeah. it's easy to relate with Dash on that level. Yeah. Um, so um let me ask this question first and then we'll go into our kind of our our wrap up um so the question that i always ask everybody at the end is did i make a good recommendation for you absolutely i mean is that even a question it's such a good recommendation i like I, I, this is one that I'm probably gonna buy on Comicsology and then buy at the comic shop so I can have it in my on my shelf for display. It's it's that type of recommendation. Yeah, good. It, yeah, I well because I bought all of the single issues, and then as I was getting to the last issue because I, it's published by Northwest Press. Um, they are located in um, uh, the Pacific Northwest, and I used to go to a lot of comic shows there. So I had the first four issues, but I couldn't get the fifth one because as I was sending someone with money to a show that they were going to be at, that, um, that Northwest Press was going to be at, 2020 happened, and so mm -hmm. didn't get there. So when oh. I saw Dash on Kickstarter, I was very happy. My name is in this book as a, as a contributor, just in case anybody <laughs> wants to know that. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, I did. That's so cool. I'm jealous. <laughs> I Well, I'm actually really glad I'm not on social media very much. And I just happened to be on social media and I saw that he had, they were, he was Dave Ebersol, the writer. Um, and we should also mention the art by Delia Gable and Vinny Rico, which is lovely. Um, different styles, but very complimentary styles. And they really, really mm -hmm. work for this piece. Um, yeah. uh, anyway, so I happened to just catch a tweet that Dave Ebersol had, like, we're fully funded. And I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know. So now <laughs> I have to go and this will teach me to check Kickstarter more often. I don't. I'm sorry. I'm a bad person. We all know that. Um, so but I do want to wrap this up with a with a shallow question. Um, because I'm not sure how I would answer it. Is Dash Malone my new comic book crush? Is Dash Malone hotter than Catman? Yes. Uh, <laughs> should I have hesitated more? <laughs> okay. Favorite, I, favorite moment of 2021 on Comics Corner was the moment that just happened. <laughs> Maybe I should have like given the crowd some anticipation. But, um, oh, I had decided that by issue two. I was like, oh, I'm so in on this one. <laughs> I know there's, I, I think Dash might be, I think Dash might, I, like part of me hesitates just because I've had a crush on Catman for so long, but I'm sort of like, I don't know. There's something about there's something about Dash where I'm like, you know, hot, yes, sarcastic, check, damaged, oh. check. I think you're <laughs> hot. <laughs> the the disheveled look with the tie pulled down and his drink in his hand. Oh, I'm I'm all on board. I'm I'm so here for it. Oh and, yeah. And I still miss Plink. That's not to say I'm not super sad for Plink, but yeah, I mean. 
I'll read it again. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Hot Comic Man of 2021, Dash Malone. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Nick. I really appreciate it. Um, so happy to have you. Anytime you want to come back, please do. Um, I think this is our 20th episode of Comics Corner. So uh, stay, oh. stay tuned when we get to episode 25. We're going to be doing something very special for it. Um, I'm working on plans for that already. Um, yeah. Nick, anything you want to tell our listeners where to follow you on social media if you are that? Anything that you have coming up that you want to plug? Anything we need to know about? Hmm. Well, I'm just looking forward to the next episode when I can join because I want to be on all of these now. It was such a good time. Thank you for having me. And anytime I can get to talk about a character like Dash, however hot, yes, I'm very on board. Uh, you can follow me at Nick Osborne on Insta, Twitter, Facebook. You can find me on any social media platform, probably rambling about comics still and never shutting up about things I'm interested in. But no, really, thank you so much for having me on and for recommending this book because I needed it in my life. And now I can't wait to add it to my library shelf. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the lovely compliments. Um, uh, as we said earlier in the show, please support your local comic shop. Um, if you go to comicshoplocator.com and you, who is not a sponsor for the show, but if you'd like to be, let me know. Um, just enter your zip code. It will give you comic shops in your area. Um, or if you would like to, uh, if you would like us to recommend a different comic shop for you or a genre or anything like that, reach out to us on social media at Coolest Month. Um, next week, I think we have an episode of Heidi and no, no. Next week, we have a brand new episode of the Coolest Month podcast. Uh, common area by Matthew Klein. So pay attention for that. That is coming next week. Thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, read Dash, um, a good Halloween read. And always thank you. Listen to us to discover why April is the cruelest month.